Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Now, I know you've heard that uh, the last seven weeks. You'll probably hear for the next few. This morning we want to focus our attention upon the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And over the next few weeks we want to dig deep into this wonderful section of, of scripture verses 15 through 20 the church in Colossae was was going through what a lot of churches are going through today and that's the crisis of of truth because there are many false voices today even in churches proclaiming something other than the supremacy of Jesus Christ proclaiming something other than the inerrancy of the word of God and so Paul in writing to this church writing from prison writing at the request of Epaphras who is realizing the struggle that a church can have when, when truth is questioned or truth is challenged. That he writes this letter that contains not only truth, but a foundation and a basis of all the pillars of our faith to a young church that needs to stay in God's word. To give an answer concerning those false teachings that were made up of, of uh, three things. And the false teaching, of course, at the time was Gnosticism. Made up of three things, Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, and Eastern mysticism. We've talked a little bit about it. The more we get into the book of Colossians, the more that we will deal with things more specifically. Even today, we're going to look at Gnosticism in a very general way. But it's enough for us to realize that these are some of the challenges that we have as believers in Jesus Christ in the church. I'd like to begin reading in verse 9. It is a section that we've, we've taken some time to study. But uh, for context's sake, I want to begin in verse 9 and read down through verse 20. For this cause, Paul writes, we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What he's talking about as far as what they heard was the love that they had in the spirit, the hope and the faith that they had in Jesus Christ goes on and says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or has enabled us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. 
who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now the scripture passage that we are focusing upon today and over the next few weeks is one of the most important passages ever written for it does two very significant things. It destroys false teaching and false thoughts about God and his son, Jesus Christ. Now we face that when we deal with non-Christian cults. But sadly, we have to face that even with certain heresies that are inside the church today. So the passage that we're reading in verses 15 through 20, or that we read in verses 15 through 20, in itself destroys this false teaching or these false teachings and false thoughts about God and his son Jesus Christ. The second thing it does is it reveals who God and Jesus Christ really are. And we need to know who Jesus Christ is. And we need to know who God the Father is. And who they really are. And that was Paul's very purpose because false teaching had seeped into the church of Colossae that attacked the person and work of Jesus Christ. That false teaching, as I've mentioned before, was called Gnosticism. And this was one of the reasons that Epaphras made the journey to visit Paul in prison. And that was to get the apostles' advice on how to deal with this heresy. Now, the sad and unfortunate thing is that the teachings of Gnosticism have continued to plague the church down through the ages and even today. In one form or another, similar teachings are always being used to attack the true church of Jesus Christ even from within. From the emerging, emergent church, to the seeker-friendly Willow Creek models, to the purpose-driven reproductions, not to mention the Bethel Church, Jesus Culture, New Apostolic Reformation heresies, each with its very low view of Scripture and of the sovereignty of God. Each will find itself lacking when Paul takes up his pen and proclaims the full truth about God and Jesus. And when he speaks of Jesus, he says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Who is the image of the invisible God? Let me first say that this relation to God the Father is the very basis of the redemption mentioned in the previous verse, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. In other words, there could never be forgiveness of sins unless Christ Jesus were both God and man. 
For only a divine act could send away, as it were, human sin and evil doing. A divine act. So now the word image that is used here by Paul, the Greek word being eikon, E-I-K-O-N, from which we get the English word icon, means literally the exact image. The exact image. The very person of God. Is seen, can be seen, will be seen, should be seen in Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus Christ was the very representation of God. God in every respect. The word icon was used to mean a mark or a figure burned or stamped on something. Burned and stamped to the point that it would never change. It would stay the same and represent the very thing that it is, has stamped upon it. In other words, a precise reproduction in every respect. But the word also means, and that is the word image, the word also means that Jesus Christ was the perfect manifestation or revelation of God. The perfect manifestation or revelation of God. When Jesus appeared, he was God in the flesh. There would be no doubt about that. Now God is invisible or unseen as the text tells us. But Jesus Christ reveals God to the world. It isn't a matter of being some, some cheap representation. Some cheap copy, no. He is revealing God to the world for he is God. He reveals God as the exact image, as the perfect representation of God. That is how powerful one word is. Now it has been said, coming into the world as a man, he is the image of the invisible God, that God who to the Gnostic could never be known or understood. We are told in John 1 verse 18, and I would encourage you to mark that down, it won't be up here, but I encourage you, in John 1 18 it says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Write that reference down as a part of your study of verse 15 of Colossians 1. No man has seen God at any time. Why? Because he's an invisible God. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, hath, he hath declared him. So the impact of this truth about Jesus Christ has explosive consequences for man. Simply because it destroys all false teaching about God and Christ while revealing God to man. It shows man who God is and what he's like. By the way, this is what the enemy of our souls desires so much to cover up. This is what he works at hard every day to cover up from the unbeliever and to actually cover up from the believer. 
to give the believer more options to think that maybe Jesus isn't everything that the Bible says he is. Take, for instance, what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, when he says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world, we know who that is, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? He has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember that Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then in verse 7 it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. How many people today who are professing preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ put more emphasis on themselves than upon Jesus? And forget what John the Baptist said when he said, I must decrease and he must increase. Because I can tell you this, God doesn't need me. But we need Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3, it says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And, and notice this, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory, the brightness of the glory of God the Father, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The word in, in the Greek for express image, the exact representation, which is what is, uh, the translation can be, the express image or exact representation of his person is one Greek word. It is not what we had before, icon. It is the word character. 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 He is the express image or character of God's person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is not only the exact representation of God the Father, he is the character of God the Father. The express image. He's everything that God the Father is can be seen in Jesus Christ. And just as we read long ago, it seemed, uh, when we started our study in the, in, in the Gospel of John, of course we concluded it, but in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Take notice how forcefully these scriptural truths destroy error. First, Gnosticism taught that there were many intermediaries 
Gnosticism taught that there were many mediators between God and man. <clears throat> and that Jesus Christ was not the only mediator. He may have been one mediator out of many. But he wasn't the only one. The scripture tells us that he is the only one. The parallel with false teaching down through the centuries is clearly seen. There have been and always will be those who proclaim that Jesus Christ is not the only person who can bring us near to God. That he is not the only mediator between God and man. Now we know this and we realize this in, in false uh, uh, cults or I should say non-Christian cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and we've talked many times about those and Christian science which is neither Christian nor science and, and, and other, other things like that. But the, but the point is that it's always Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. Jesus plus these books. Jesus plus this magazine. Jesus plus doing this and doing that. Whereas the Bible tells us it's Jesus and him alone. So we've always had those who proclaim that Jesus is not the only person who can bring us near to God. That he is not the only mediator between God and man. That there are many and other mediators and intermediaries of God. Other great teachers who are just as important as Jesus who can bring us in touch with God. Well, the, the sad thing is that you, know, you can compare Buddha and Muhammad and other leaders of various cults and self-proclaimed messiahs even today. And sadly... Some of those names are being mentioned in Christian churches today as being people to look at, people to consider. This is what you find in some emerging churches today. Now, if you don't know what an emerging church is, I'll, I'm going to talk about it in, in, in the next few weeks. So, so hold on to your hats. But I'll, no matter what here... Note how the truth destroys this false teaching. The truth destroys the false teaching. Jesus Christ who lived and walked among men is the express image of God, the very Lord of the universe. This means something most significant. It means that God is not what most men think. He is not some unconcerned and distant God who is off in outer space somewhere. Or some old man with a long white beard and long white hair sitting there kind of, you know, wondering what's going on in the world today. That's not God. He's not separated from man by a host of intermediaries or by many different ways to reach him. God is not out of touch with the world. He has not made it difficult to reach him. He's very close at hand. He's always been close at hand. There was an old song years ago that I loved to sing. It was called, He's as close as the mention of his name. Our God is as close as the mention of his name. Has always been. He's close at hand, so, much, so, so close that he has come to earth and lived as a man among us. That's how close he is. And in doing so, he's done two wonderful things for us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. By the way, things that you probably heard me say already today. First, he's shown us exactly who he is and what he's like. 
And second, he has shown us the way to reach him. What does Jesus show us about his father? What does he show us about God the Father? The fact that he came to this world shows us that he and he alone is the supreme person who can take us to God the Father. He and he alone. No one else went to that one cross. Though many men have been crucified, whether for their faith or for some crime, there was only one cross that mattered. The fact that he came to this world shows us that God is near and not far off. The fact that Jesus Christ lived as a man, ministering and helping, shows us that God truly cares for his creation. And has always cared for his creation. The fact that Jesus died at the hands of men shows that God is love. He willingly sacrificed himself. Now we know that being God he did not have to die. But he came willingly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and the son voluntarily came, as we're told in Philippians chapter 2. But God gave his son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And before he went to the cross, he told his own disciples, that there is no love like the love of one who gives his life. Greater love hath no man than this, that one give his life for his friend. The fact that Jesus Christ proclaimed salvation to man shows that God is a loving Savior, that God gave every opportunity for every person born in this, in this world, throughout every generation. To have eternal life. The fact that Jesus proclaimed judgment upon evil and warned men of destruction shows that God is a just God. As much as he is a gracious God and a merciful God. That list could go on and on and on, but the point is clearly seen. The Lord is not so unconcerned and far away from man that he's left man to grope and to stumble through life on his own seeking after God. Though we know a lot of people that do. And even though the truth is right in their face, they say, well, there's got to be another way. There's got to be something else. No, there's nothing else. Now, that's what we have found out. When we came to Jesus. There's nothing else. No one else. No other way. He loves us and he cares for man so much that he has shown man exactly who he is. And what he is like and the way to reach him. Exactly who God is. What he's like and the way to reach him. God is as close as his only begotten son is. So when Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me.
There's no other truth than that. No man cometh unto the Father. No man, no, not one. None can come unto the Father but by me. And Paul in that great doctrinal book called Ephesians writes in Ephesians 2 verse 18 very clearly for through him speaking of Jesus through him we both have access by one spirit unto the father access through Jesus Christ by one spirit unto the father and when he speaks to his son in the faith Timothy in his letter to him in 1 Timothy 2 verses 3 through 6 Paul says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator. I think we all can distinguish between one and any other number, right? So there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Why the man Christ Jesus? Because Jesus had to come as a man to die for the sins of men. And being without sin, he was the only Lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world. One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom for all. And by the way, as it says in the book of Hebrews, once for all. One sacrifice for all. To his disciples, he said at one time, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Something had to be paid for our salvation. He was our ransom. No other has been. No other can be. And no other will be. And so Jesus Christ alone is the image of God, the supreme person of the universe. He alone is the mediator between God and man. And his father, by the way, is quite pleased with that. For he says in verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1, we read it a little earlier. For it pleased the Father that in him, his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This is why we are to honor the Lord. To thank him. To praise him. To worship him. To serve him. Let's consider one more point about Gnosticism. And again, I'm just looking at these things in a general way, and we're going to become a little bit more specific as we get more into the book of, of uh, Colossians. But, but Gnosticism said that, that the human body was evil. The human body was evil. Now this teaching resulted in two different attitudes toward the body and life. Some said that the body needed to be disciplined. It needed to be controlled and taken care of as much as possible. And by controlling its urges and appetites and keeping fit, the, the corruption and evil of the body could be mastered more easily. Because it was evil. And you have to control it. 
And yet others said the very opposite. And that is within Gnosticism itself. There are many camps of Gnosticism. This is what we're going to be learning. So others said the very opposite. What was done in the body mattered little. For it was evil and doomed to death. And therefore, once a person took care of his spirit, you just dealt with the inside of you. You just dealt with the very spiritual side of you. The body was, 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 was a waste of time. It's already evil. And therefore, once a person took care of his spirit, he could then eat, drink, and be merry. I just, just, just go do whatever you want to do in your body because, you know, but just, just get the spirit right, you know. The parallel with the false teaching of today is, is evident in both of those camps. Because some concentrate today on the body and its health through recreation and discipline and strict living, seeking to overcome the evil, that is, the corruption, disease, aging, and dying of the body as much as possible. On the other hand, others live as they please, eating and drinking and partying as they so desire, thinking that uh, it matters little how they live, just think how many people feel they can do their own thing, what they want, when they want, how they want, just so they believe in God and worship and do a good deed here and there. Of course, you have to ask, well, what God are you serving? And usually it's the God of self, because that would lead to indulgences uh, that uh, man would only want to give to himself. So there are extremes even in Gnosticism. But here's the point. Each gives special attention to the spiritual only as they wish. Only as they wish, only as much as as they feel is necessary to keep their spirit in touch with God. But their concentration is the body and its pleasure. Whether the pleasure is the exhibition of discipline and control or the stimulating of the flesh. Two different camps, but the focus is the flesh. Now, Take note how truth destroys this lifestyle and teaching. The human body is not evil in and of itself. The body is not evil in and of itself. I mean, I'm not standing up here and you're not, look, you're not sitting there looking up here and saying, oh my, what an evil man, he's in flesh. And I'm not here looking at each and every one of you saying, oh my God, this room is full of a bunch of evil people. That are in flesh. (laughs) The human body is not evil in and of itself. And you know who showed us that? Jesus. Consider he is the image of God. The very son of God himself who came to the earth like we did. In a human body. Born of a woman. Just like all of us were. Isn't it great that nobody says, I was born of a man? No, 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 you were born of a woman. Ah. Born of a woman. And by the way, a woman chosen of God. 
Yet a woman who considered and declared her son her savior. And therefore the human body could not be evil in and of itself. For God cannot be touched by evil. The human body has to be honorable or else Jesus Christ would not have wrapped himself in a human body and come to earth. The conclusion is shocking and convulsive for the life of man. <clears throat> I mean, since the body is honorable, it means that everything a person does with their body is important to their spiritual welfare. What he or she does with his or her body determines their relationship and destiny with God. Let me explain. It is a total impossibility to keep one's spirit right with God and let one's body go its own way. Each of us is a person with both spirit and body. That needs to be under the subjection of God. And therefore, we are to honor God with both our spirits and our bodies, just as Jesus did in the body given him by God. Think of the words of Paul to the, book, uh, to, the, uh, to the Roman church in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, he says, I'm begging you. I'm imploring you by the mercies of God that you present your body as a living sacrifice. <clears throat> holy. In other words, set apart. Set apart unto God, set apart from the world. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, service which applies to our worship of God. And be not conformed to this world. Conformed, formed with the world, formed in the very image of the world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But he becomes more specific when he writes to the church in Corinth and he says in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 12 through 20 and they were having a tremendous problem with issues of the body. When he writes to them, all things are lawful unto me but all things are not expedient. In other words, all things are not beneficial. They're not helpful to me. All things are lawful for me but I will not be brought under the power of any. And then he says, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. Has anybody given up meat lately just because you read that verse? No, we need, we need to listen to what Paul is saying. He says, meats for the belly, the belly is for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. We don't worry about those things when you sit down and give thanks to God for the meat that you have. A meat eater. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but then he says this. And notice that, I mean, this drastic thought. He says, now the body is not for fornication. Sexual sin. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God has both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? You see where he's going with this? What do we do with our bodies? Does it mean just what you do on the outside or the inside to make it pretty and smell good and all of these other things? Or make it look good? 
No. He says, God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which has joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. See how corrupt we can turn the body into by not living according to the word of God? But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Flee it. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body or outside of the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? And by the way, that applies to a lot of things that we do to the body. We, we need to really kind of consider that here. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Meat for the belly, belly for meat. Well, we're all, we all, you know, we're going to leave here and eat meat. I think that's what's inside those burritos out there right now. But it comes and goes. Because eventually that's all gone. But it's what we do that the word of God tells us is either an abomination or just something that we ought not to do. So Paul in Colossians 1 verses 20 through 22, and we read verse 20 late, uh, earlier, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And he goes on and he says, and you that were sometimes or sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That's the importance of the body because we have to consider what Jesus did in his own body on our behalf. So that's the issue of Gnosticism as it applies to what they do to the outward. But Gnosticism said that the way to God now, we're moving on to a third point, was through learning a certain amount of knowledge and certain key words that would assure the opening up of spiritual insight. In other words, it isn't just the word of God, it isn't just the Bible that matters here for us, but there's other key things that we need to know. There's a level of spirituality or there's a level of things that can appear to be very secretive, but we have the keys to the secrets. So come to us and we'll tell you what those keys are. The emphasis was upon intellect and learning. Listen carefully. The, in, the emphasis was upon intellect and learning, knowledge and insight, personal improvement and self-effort and achieving acceptance with God. Now we, we hear about all these self-improvement uh, gurus that go around the nation and, and have these big conferences and people go in there and they got their little microphone and they walk up and down and run across the stage and doing this and telling you know, people that this is the secret to this and see, you know, to your, your success in life and, and so on and so forth, which is exactly what, what Word of Faith and Prosperity teachers do themselves. They, they might as well just be you know, the same kind of dudes. As a matter of fact, that's what they do sometimes. They go around the country and they, they become self-effort uh, gurus, you know, or self-successful gurus. Is that what it's all about? We'll give you the plan. We'll give you the ten ways to do it. Sometimes they even use the Bible to say 
But that's what the Bible tells us we should be doing. The parallel with so much of man's natural thinking is evident. Whether in Paul's time or in ours. So many feel safe and secure if they know about God and religion. God and some other knowledge, some other level of of religious uh, belief. If they know religious phrases and words and can talk in pious and religious language. You learn the language, you got it made, right? I don't see anywhere in the scriptures that says, you know, change your language and you're going to be saved. If they are religious enough to learn about God and religion, that's enough for some people. I know about God. I read about him 55 years ago. That's all I need. Really? Take note. And I've said this many times. Knowing about someone is not knowing the person. Knowing about someone is not knowing the person. It is not personal knowledge. God wants us to have personal knowledge of him. He wants us to have personal knowledge of his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He wants us to have a personal relationship with his Holy Spirit. He wants us to have a relationship with the triune God, the one God in three persons. The truth revealed by Jesus Christ strikes at the very foundation of such thoughts and teachings of having God and religion or having God and knowledge or having God and, 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 and some level of steps to achieve something. The Lord doesn't save a person because they think about God and know, and, and know something about religion. The Lord saves And listen carefully. The Lord saves the uneducated as well as the educated. The Lord saves the simple and the intellectual. The Lord saves the ignorant and the knowledgeable. The Lord saves the poor as well as the rich. He saves the young and the old. We can see this in that Jesus Christ, the very image of God, came to earth as a baby. Jesus came and was reared by simple, poor parents. Now, some would argue that they weren't poor. I say they were. At least the scriptures give us every indication that they were. Jesus wasn't educated at a university or any other school beyond the local synagogue. Jesus always ministered to the needy of the world, regardless of age, simplicity, suffering, or ignorance. Jesus reveals that the Lord saves all who come to the Father through him. He who redeems us and forgives us our sins. What Paul said in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. No matter where we are, no matter where we've been, No matter what we think we are, no matter who we think we are, when we stand before a holy God, we're nothing, and he's everything. But when we surrender our lives to him, he gives us life, and he gives us meaning, and he gives us purpose, but more importantly, he gives us eternal life because he loves us with an everlasting love. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And therefore Paul in Romans chapter 10 verses 12 and 13 says, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The Jews and the Greeks would argue this, but Paul knew better. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Simple. The simple gospel of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 55, and I'm going to close with this. Yes, it's early. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Every one, rich and poor, young and old. Jew and Gentile. Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money. Listen. He that hath no money, come ye, buy, and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. We would love that if Macy's one day would say, come, this way. You couldn't keep the people out of the doors. But what's significant about this statement? A price was paid. Come, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. We know this. We look at our own country and our own economic and financial world, you know, and we, we say, well, nothing's for free, even though some people think you can have things for free. Nothing is free. Yet God is saying, come. Buy. But you don't have to pay. Doesn't sound logical, but you know why? Because it doesn't have to be. A price has already been paid. The price is the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the price and the blessing, even the forgiveness of sins. I don't know about you, but when I came to Jesus Christ, I came like anybody else who came with so much baggage and ugliness. And to know that when I accepted the truth about Jesus Christ and received the Lord Jesus into my life, that at that very moment he lifted this burden. He said, I paid for that. My blood, I paid for it. And here's the gift, eternal life, for believing in me, for trusting in what I did for you. And the weight was so lifted 
brought me to think how little people realize the importance of what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll lift you. I'll save you. I'll maintain you. I'll sustain you. And I will bring you safely home. Because this isn't home. But where I am, there you will be also. Have you come to Jesus? I hope you have. But if you haven't, you need to come to Jesus. We're not going to force you. No. The Holy Spirit will speak to you right now. It's time to get right with Jesus. Look at the world. Look at what's happening in the world today. You think it's going to get better? It's not. But for the believer, we should be excited. Excited to know that at any given moment, Jesus can come. And I hope and pray he comes right away. But you need to be ready. And you need to know him. You need to know.